Book Four, The Church of the Slavers, Part Two, of The Prophets of Religion by Upton Sinclair. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Witches and Women To whatever part of the world you travel, to whatever page of history you turn, you find the endowed and established clergy using the word of God in defense of whatever form of slave-driving may then be popular and profitable. Two or three hundred years ago it was the custom of Protestant divines, in England and America, to hang poor old women as witches. Only a hundred and fifty years ago we find John Wesley, founder of Methodism, declaring that the giving up of witchcraft is in effect the giving up of the Bible. And if you investigate this witch-burning, you will find that it is only one aspect of a blot upon civilization, the Christian misogyny. You see, there were two Hebrew legends, one that woman was made out of a man's rib, and the other that she ate an apple. Therefore, in modern England, a wife must be content with a legal status lower than a domestic servant. Perhaps the most comical of the clerical claims is this, that Christianity has promoted chivalry and respect for womanhood. In ancient Greece and Rome the woman was the equal and helpmate of man. We read in Tacitus about the splendid women of the Germans, who took part in public councils and even fought in battles. Two thousand years before the Christian era, we are told by Mospero that the Egyptian woman was the mistress of her house. She could inherit equally with her brothers, and had full control of her property. We are told by Pat Turet that she was juridically the equal of man, having the same rights and being treated in the same fashion. But in present-day England, under the common law, woman can hold no office of trust or power, and her husband has the sole custody of her person, and of her children while minors. He can steal her children, rob her of her clothing, and beat her with a stick, provided it is no thicker than his thumb. While I was in London, the highest court handed down a decision on the law which does not permit a woman to divorce her husband for infidelity, unless it has been accompanied by cruelty. A man had brought his mistress into his home, and compelled his wife to work for and wait upon her, and the decision was that this was not cruelty in the meaning of the law. And if you say that this enslavement of woman has nothing to do with religion, that ancient Hebrew fables do not control modern English customs, then listen to the Vicar of Crantock, preaching at St. Crantock's, London, August 27, 1905, and explaining why women must cover their heads in church. 1. Man's Priority of Creation Adam was first formed, then Eve. 2. The Manner of Creation 
The man is not of the woman, but the woman of the man. 3. The purport of creation. The man was not created for the woman, but the woman for the man. 4. Results in creation. The man is the image of the glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. 5. Woman's priority in the fall. Adam was not deceived, but the woman, being deceived, was in the transgression. 6. The marriage relation. As the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their husbands. 7. The headship of man and woman. The head of every man is Christ, but the head of the woman is man. I say there is no modern evil which cannot be justified by these ancient texts, and there is nowhere in Christendom a clergy which cannot be persuaded to cite them at the demand of ruling classes. In the city where I write, three clergymen are being sent to jail for six months for protesting against the use of the name of Jesus in the wholesale slaughter of men. Now, I am backing this war. I know that it has to be fought, and I want to see it fought as hard as possible. But I want to leave Jesus out of it, for I know that Jesus did not believe in war, and never could have been brought to support a war. I object to clerical cant on the subject. And I note that an eminent theological authority, Billy Sunday, appears to agree with me, for I find him on the front page of my morning paper assailing the three pacifist clergymen and making his appeal not to Jesus, but to the bloodthirsty tribal deity of the ancient Hebrews. I suppose they think they know more than God Almighty, who commanded the sun to stand still while Joshua won the battle for the Lord, more than the God who made Samson strong so he could slay thousands of his nation's enemies in a righteous cause. Right you are, Billy. And if the capitalist system continues to develop unchecked, we shall some day see it dawn upon the masters of the world how wasteful it is to permit these superannuated workers to perish by slow starvation, so much more sensible to make use of them. So we shall have a Bible defense of cannibalism. We shall hear our evangelists quoting Leviticus, They shall eat the flesh of their own sons and daughters. Or perhaps some of our leisure class ladies might make the discovery that the flesh of working-class babies is relished by Pomeranians and Poodles. If so, the Billy Sundays of the twenty-first century may discover the text, Happy shall be he that taketh and dasheth thy little ones against the stones. Moth and Rust it is especially interesting to notice what happens when the Bible texts work against the interests of the slavers and their clerical retainers. Then they are null and void, and no matter how precise and explicit and unmistakable they may be. Take for example the Sabbath injunction. 
Six days shalt thou labor and do all that thou hast to do. Karl Marx records of the pious England of his time that Occasionally in rural districts a day laborer is condemned to imprisonment for desecrating the Sabbath by working in his front garden. The same laborer is punished for breach of contract if he remains away from his metal, paper, or glass works on the Sunday, even if it be from a religious whim. The Orthodox Parliament will hear nothing of Sabbath-breaking if it occurs in the process of expanding capital. Or consider the attitude of the Church in the matter of usury. Throughout ancient Hebrew history, the money-lender was an outcast. Both the law and the prophets denounced him without mercy, and it was made perfectly clear that what was meant was not the taking of high interest, but the taking of any interest whatsoever. The early church fathers were explicit, and the Catholic Church for a thousand years consigned money-lenders unhesitatingly to hell. But then came the modern commercial system, and the money-lenders became the masters of the world. There is no more amusing illustration of the perversion of human thought than the efforts of the Jesuit casuists to escape from the dilemma into which their heavenly guides had trapped them. Here, for example, is Alfonso Liguri, a Spanish Jesuit of the 18th century, a doctor of the church, now worshipped as St. Alphonsus, presenting a long and elaborate theory of mental usury, concluding that, if the borrower pay interest of his own free will, the lender may keep it. In answer to the question whether the lender may keep what the borrower pays not out of gratitude but out of fear that otherwise loans will be refused to him in future, Liguri says that, To be usury it must be paid by reason of a contract, or as justly due. Payment by reason of such a fear does not cause interest to be paid as an actual price. Again, the great saint and doctor tells us that it is not usury to exact something in return for the danger and expense of regaining the principal. Could the house of J. P. Morgan and Company ask more of their ecclesiastical department? The reader may think that such sophistications are now out of date, but he will find precisely the same knavery in the efforts of present-day slavers to fit Jesus Christ into the system of competitive commercialism. Jesus, as we have pointed out, was a carpenter's son, a thoroughly class-conscious proletarian. He denounced the exploiters of his own time with ferocious bitterness. He drove the money-changers out of the temple with whips, and he finally died the death of a common criminal. If he had foreseen the whole modern cycle of capitalism and wage slavery, he could hardly have been more precise in his exhortations to his followers to stand apart from it.
But did all this avail him? Not in the least. I place upon the witness stand an exponent of Bible Christianity whom all readers of our newspapers know well, a scholar of learning, a publicist of renown, once pastor of the most famous church in Brooklyn, now editor of our most influential religious weekly, a liberal both in theology and politics, a modernist, an advocate of what he calls industrial democracy. His name is Lyman Abbott, and he is writing under his own signature in his own magazine, his subject being The Ethical Teachings of Jesus. Several times I have tried to persuade people that the words I am about to quote were actually written and published by this eminent doctor of divinity, and people have almost refused to believe me. Therefore I specify that the article may be found in the Outlook, the bound volumes of which are in all large libraries. Volume 94, page 576. The words are as follows, the bold face being Dr. Abbott's, not mine. My radical friend declares that the teachings of Jesus are not practicable, that we cannot carry them out in life, and that we do not pretend to do so. Jesus, he reminds us, said, Lay not up for yourself treasures upon earth and Christians do universally lay up for themselves treasures upon earth. Every man that owns a house and lot, or a share of stock in a corporation, or a life insurance policy, or money in a savings bank, has laid up for himself treasure upon earth. But Jesus did not say, Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth. He said, Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth where moth and rust doth corrupt, and where thieves break through and steal. And no sensible American does. Moth and rust do not get at Mr. Rockefeller's oil wells, nor at the sugar trust's sugar. And thieves do not often break through and steal a railway, or an insurance company, or a savings bank. What Jesus condemned was hoarding wealth. Strange as it may sound to some of the readers of this book, I count myself among the followers of Jesus of Nazareth. His example has meant more to me than that of any other man, and all the experiences of my revolutionary life have brought me nearer to him. Living in the great metropolis of Mammon, I have felt the power of privilege, its scourge upon my back, its crown of thorns upon my head. When I read that article in the Outlook, I felt just as Jesus himself would have felt, and I sat down and wrote a letter. To Lyman Abbott This discovery of a new method of interpreting the Bible is one of such very great interest and importance that I cannot forbear to ask space to comment upon it. May I suggest that Dr. Abbott elaborate this exceedingly fruitful Lee and write us another article 
upon the extent to which the teachings of the inspired word are modified by modern conditions, by the progress of invention and the scientific arts? The point of view which Dr. Abbott takes is one which had never occurred to me before, and I had therefore been completely mistaken as to the attitude of Jesus on the question. Also I have, like Dr. Abbott, many radical friends who are still laboring under error. Jesus goes on to bid his hearers, Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They toil not, neither do they spin. What an apt simile is this for the great mass of American wealth in Dr. Abbott's portrayal of it. It is serving the community, he tells us, it is building a railway to open a new country to settlement by the homeless. It is operating a railway to carry grain from the harvests of the West to the unfed millions of the East, etc. Incidentally, it is piling up dividends for its pious owners, and so everybody is happy. And Jesus, if he should come back to earth, could never know that he had left the abodes of bliss above. Truly, there should be a new school of Bible interpretation founded upon this brilliant idea. Jesus says, Therefore, when thou doest thine alms, do not sound a trumpet before thee, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may have glory of men. Verily not, for of what avail are trumpets, compared with the millions of copies of newspapers which daily go forth to tell of Mr. Rockefeller's benefactions. How transitory are they, compared with the graven marble or granite which Mr. Carnegie sets upon the front of each of his libraries? There is the paragraph, Neither shalt thou swear by thy head, because thou canst not make one hair white or black. I have several among my friends who are Quakers, presumably Dr. Abbott has also, and he should not fail to point out to them the changes which scientific discovery has wrought in the significance of this command against swearing. We can now make our hair either white or black, or a combination of both. We can make it a brilliant peroxide golden. We could, if pushed to an extreme, make it purple or green. So we are clearly entitled to swear all we please by our head. Nor should we forget to examine other portions of the Bible according to this method. Look not upon the wine when it is red, we are told. Thanks to the activities of that capitalism which Dr. Abbott praises so eloquently, we now make our beverages in the chemical laboratory, and their color is a matter of choice. Also it should be pointed out that we have a number of pleasant drinks which are not wine at all. Highballs and gin rickies and peppered punches, also vermouth and creme de menthe and absinthe, which I believe are green in hue, and therefore entirely safe. Then there are the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image. 
see how completely our understanding of this command is changed, so soon as we realize that we are free to make images of molten metal, and that we may with impunity bow down to them and worship them and serve them, even, for instance, a golden calf. The seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord thy God. In it thou shalt not do any work, thou, nor thy son, nor thy daughter, thy manservant, nor thy maidservant, nor thy cattle, nor the stranger that is within thy gates. This, again, it will be noted, is open to new interpretations. It specifies maidservants, but does not prevent one's employing as many married women as he pleases. It also says nothing about the various kinds of labor-saving machinery which we have now taught to work for us. Sailboats, naphtha launches, yachts, automobiles, and private cars, all of which may be busily occupied during the seventh day of the week. The men who run these machines, the guides, boatmen, stokers, pilots, chauffeurs, and engineers, would all indignantly resent being regarded as servants, and so they do not come under the prohibition any more than the machines. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's house, thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife, nor his manservant, nor his maidservant, nor his ox, nor his ass, nor anything that is thy neighbor's. I read this paragraph over for the first time in quite a while, and I came with a jolt to its last words. I had been intending to point out that it said nothing about a neighbor's automobile, nor a neighbor's oil wells, sugar trusts, insurance companies, and savings banks. The last words, however, stop one of abruptly. One is almost tempted to imagine that the divine intelligence must have foreseen Dr. Abbott's ingenious method of interpretation, and taken this precaution against him. And this was a great surprise to me, for, truly, I had not supposed it possible that such an interpretation could have been foreseen, even by omniscience itself. I will conclude this communication by venturing the assertion that it could not have been foreseen by any other person or thing, in the heavens above, on the earth beneath, or the waters under the earth. Dr. Abbott may accept my congratulations upon having achieved the most ingenious and masterful exhibition of casuistical ledger domain that it has ever been my fortune to encounter in my readings in the literatures of some thirty centuries and seven different languages. And I will also add that I respectfully challenge Dr. Abbott to publish this letter. And I announce to him in advance that if he refuses to publish it, I will cause it to be published upon the first page of the Appeal to Reason, where it will be read by some five hundred thousand socialists, and by them set before several million followers of Jesus Christ, the world's first and greatest revolutionist, whom Dr. Lyman Abbott has traduced and betrayed by the most amazing piece of theological knavery that it has ever been my fortune to encounter.
End of Book Four, Part Two.